We are coming to the end of a series that we started at the beginning of summer. And while there is one more message to the series next week, um, today is really where the main argument of Romans ends. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, takes everything from chapter 1 and kind of brings it to a conclusion. That's where we're at today. I was sitting with my nine-year-old daughter and my two-year-old son. We were sitting on the patio and just out talking. It was early morning. And with my two-year-old, I said, hey, buddy, give me five. And he gave me five. He said, give me a fist bump. He gives me a fist bump. And then I wanted to introduce something new. I said, give me a finger. Just held out one finger. And he comes over with his little two-year-old finger, and he slaps it. Um, And my daughter thought that was awesome. And she goes, Killian, give me the finger, too. Now, I'm not sure she got what she was saying. In fact, I'm pretty sure she didn't quite get it. She just kept going on with it. Um, Give me the finger. How many times have you been having a conversation and suddenly realized it was about something you didn't even realize it was about? You missed something. How many times have you felt like you've read something in Scripture and you just somebody explains it and you go, oh, How did I not see that? Um, That that something was missing in the translation. I have one goal this morning. I want to make sure we don't miss Romans. This is, especially since the Reformation, this is probably the most significant book in the Bible. I hate to, you know, layer things and rank them, but if you look at all of the Reformers, Romans was it. I mean, this is the book. Um, Even to the point that today, think about many of the gospel presentations like the Romans wrote or the four spiritual laws. They're all out of Romans. This is such a significant book. It would be a crime to get to the end of it and to have missed Paul's point. That's where we're going today. Would you open your Bible to Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15. Starting in verse 1. As the kids were leaving, Lori said, look at all that energy go out of the room. I hope you have a little bit left. (laughs) Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong. Um, In case you have not been here the last couple of weeks, all of Romans 14 is about the weak and the strong and their relationship. Um, And when Paul says strong, it is not a reference to a non-believer versus a believer. It's not a reference to somebody who knows Jesus and somebody who doesn't. It is a reference to the way in which a believer views certain practices. What Paul in particular is referring to is meat sacrificed to idols. The weak were those who thought that the meat sacrificed was unclean because it was sacrificed and they wouldn't eat it. The strong are the ones who are saying, you know what, idols aren't real anyway. And so it doesn't matter that it was sacrificed. It's not unclean. Paul now says, as he brings this to a close, all the way from the beginning of 14, we who are strong, and he throws himself into there, have an obligation, not an option, but an obligation, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And that word bear is significant. It does not mean to put up with. 
right, which we're not bad at at times. You know, we can put up with somebody who is different from us or disagrees with us. Or, now, this is bear with. It means to bear under. This is the idea of the strong carrying the weak, using their strength not to shove it in the face of the weak, not to just demand their own way because they are strong and can do it, but to take the strength and to use it for the sake of the weak. To bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You who are strong, whoever you are, in whatever point you might be, because one of the points that we made is that sometimes we are weak and sometimes we are strong. But when you are strong, Paul says, use that strength not to please you, not to seek your best and what's good for you, but to seek the good of somebody else, to edify somebody else, build up that word. That's what we're to use our strength for. Other people, even to the point Look at this quote. For Christ did not please himself. Hey, this is Paul's trump card. All right? For Christ did not please himself. Um, this is like when somebody says to you, well, God told me to do this. And you go, all right. Yes, the argument's over. I don't really have anything you can say back to that. God told you. This is Christ did not please himself. So if you are a follower of Christ, you should not be seeking to please yourself but you should be doing what he did, even to this point. And this quote from the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I'm gonna take you through a train of thought here to get to Paul's point. Original context, David is being reproached because of his faith in Yahweh. And really, he's serving Yahweh faithfully, so the reproaches that are being put on him, they're really about God. People rejecting God, even though it's being forced onto David. Paul now takes that and he puts it to Jesus. Right? And if you read this psalm and you go back a little bit, it's the psalm where Jesus quotes in John 2 about zeal for your house will consume me. Right? This is that part. So this is now when they're attacking Jesus, they're really attacking God because Jesus is faithfully fulfilling what God wants done. So they may be going after him, but really they're going after God. So the reproaches of you are falling on me, Jesus, Paul now takes that and he says to the strong, will you go so far as to even take reproach for the sake of the weak? Will you go so far as to even bear the insults, the attacks that would come upon the weak? Would you take your strength and step in front of them? Would you go that far? Not because you deserve what you'd be getting, not necessarily because they even deserve it, but because you are strong, will you step in front and take those reproaches? That's how far Paul is pushing this on pleasing them and not yourself. For their good, to build them up, and even to step in front of them. I just read this little article um, in Denver, Colorado, where I-25, um, Colorado Avenue, you can get off on, from I-25 onto Colorado Avenue, and it's three lanes on both sides with a decent-sized median in the middle. There is a homeless guy that stands on one of these corners every day with a cardboard sign. At one point, a woman witnessed this guy 
suddenly start running down the street. All right? So here comes the traffic this way. There's traffic going this way and this side. He's running down the street. He throws his signs down, and he runs into the middle of the traffic and starts waving for all of these cars to stop. Turn around. On the other side, coming this direction, there is a car that is slowed way down, and it's swerving across all three lanes heading toward the median. It jumps the median and lands on this side of the road where all these cars were coming. This homeless guy and others at this point have seen what's going on from the side. They all run out, and they start on the sides of this car trying to slow this car down so it doesn't run into a building. They get it slowed down. The woman driving it had a seizure, and it had fallen unconscious. The next day, the lady who witnessed all this went and talked to the guy. He was back on the corner, had his sign up. This is what she wrote. Here is a man who most likely spends every day getting ignored by people who are trying not to make eye contact with him so they don't feel bad about not giving him money. Yet he didn't even hesitate to risk his life to save this lady and at least 20 others who would have crashed into her. He didn't expect anything from her, and he was back on the corner the next day holding up his sign like nothing had happened. I rolled down my window the next day to praise him, and all he had to say was, he thought he could help, so he did. Not pleasing myself, but looking out for others. Not because of what I gain out of it, but to help them for their good, to build them up, because he's already done so much for me. That's this first calling. Now, at redemption, we try to be honest. I've told you before that I am so far from perfect and I screw up so many times that I probably should not be wearing robes. What he just said is so easy to hear. It's actually not that hard to preach, especially if you get a good illustration or something and make everybody feel good about it and go, oh, I want to do that too. It's when we leave and we start trying to do it. And you start trying to not please yourself but please somebody else. And in the midst of that, and just tell me if this has not happened to you, you start sacrificing yourself, and you sacrifice yourself for a while, but then you start getting worn down. Then you start feeling the weight of it. Then you start wanting somebody to recognize you. Then you need somebody to build you up. And the next thing you know, you're no longer sacrificing yourself for others because you're just beat up and worn down, and you can't do it anymore. How are we supposed to not just do an action where we try to help somebody else and not us, but live that way. How are we supposed to live that out? Romans chapter 15, verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Um, so, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, you might think that what he's doing is he's bolstering an argument. He's citing an authority. In the same way that you and I, um, as believers, I've heard this done a number of times, somebody might say, make a point and then go, and C.S. Lewis says, and I'm using that as an authority figure to say what I'm saying is accurate, what I'm saying is true, is real. 
Right? And you might think as he quotes the Old Testament that that's what he's doing. Right? I ran across, as I was researching this, people that you might want to use if you want to bolster your argument in that way. Because Reader's Digest, a couple years ago, they did a poll. Who are the 100 most trusted figures in America? People that everybody trusts that you might want to quote to bolster your argument. And I want to give you a few in case you have arguments you want to make and you want to have some authority behind them. <laughs> Number 96 was Dr. Phil. 96th most trusted person in America. So just, you can quote him if you want to. Um, 84 was Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice. Then you start getting just kind of weird. 54 is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. <laughs> 54th most trusted person in America, apparently. But then it, just, it keeps going like this. Number 13 is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so you could quote Clint Eastwood and people will believe you because he's the 13th most trusted person in America, apparently. I don't know who they did this poll with. And number one, Tom Hanks. Number one, Tom Hanks. We have certain people that we might trust, that we might quote you know, if you were a doctor, you might quote some doctors. If you're a teacher, you might quote some educators. That's not what Paul is doing. And I know this is a long way of saying that, but it's because I want you to see his point. The scripture, what was written beforehand. Here, Paul's referring to the Old Testament, but now it's the whole thing. What was written beforehand was written for our instruction. Right? Do you know this? Do you know that the scripture is there so that you might know who God is? That you might know who you are? That you might know what God is doing in the world? That you might know what God is doing in your life? That you might know what your future holds? The scripture is there to instruct us. But it's the next part. That through endurance, all right, here's my endurance. I'm walking this road. I am trying my darndest to please others and not myself, but it is getting hard. That through endurance and, and on that and, you just make it bold, you make it big, you make it all caps. And the encouragement of the scriptures. The word encouragement means to bolster up somebody's faith or action. The encouragement of the scriptures. We might have hope. Here's the thing. I, I know this to be true. Not because Raiders Digest did a poll, I just know it to be true. The average Christian in America does not read the scriptures. Especially on any kind of consistent basis. They don't take the word and stay in it. They are looking for, I believe, instant gratification. They are looking for that thing that clicks right now and changes me or does this or does that but we don't change that way. We change over time. Scripture is meant to be something that you are in and you're going through things and you keep reading this stuff where you go, oh, wait a minute. He also was reproached like this. He also had this happen to him. 
this person also screwed up and yet God forgave them and God, see God's love. I'm feeling this, but I know God loves me because I keep reading it and seeing it. We are meant to be in the scriptures because they are meant to encourage us. The scriptures, hey, hear this. If you only take one thing away from everything I'm saying right now, the scriptures are not the answers in the back of a math book. But that's how we treat it. We treat it like, let me just go find this verse. Let love be genuine. Okay, there's my verse to quote at you or to quote at me. Or I memorize this verse so everything is good. It's not that kind of answer book. It is more like the rest of the math book where you are learning how to do math. It requires that you are in it, that you are letting it speak to you, that as you're going through something, I mean, just read the Psalms next time you are struggling. Watch how David struggles and know that you're not alone. Know that God does act, even if it takes a really long time. We are called to be in them consistently, regularly, because that's the encouragement that Paul holds up to keep us on that path and to give us hope. Let me ask you, how powerful is real hope? Over 20 years ago, I met my wife. And we spent a number of months together. You know, we were madly in love with each other. Just didn't want to be away from each other, except that she lived in South Dakota. And we were in college, and so summer came, and she went back to South Dakota. Now, at the end of that summer, I was going to drive to see her. That was like the hardest summer ever. Like, I couldn't, in fact, okay, there's, it's 20 years ago. There's no FaceTime, long distance. Like, you have those numbers you dial beforehand, like 3112 star something, and it gives you cheap phone calls. And, like, you can't just make a bunch of long distance calls. I mean, nothing. We had to communicate through letters. We just moved into a new home a couple weeks, a week and a half ago, I guess. And as I'm going through stuff, I found one of these letters that my wife had written me. And I open up and I start reading it. And one of the things that stood out is she says something like, um, you're getting this letter today, you should only get two or three more tomorrow. That's what we were doing for each other. Like we were writing and sending multiple letters a day because this was life. I am in Bakersfield, California, which is a horrible place. I can say that because I'm from there. I'm in Bakersfield, California, and I'm working a job, I'm working two jobs actually, that I don't like. I don't want to be there. I want to be with her, but I can't see her. I can't talk to her. What is keeping my sanity? What is keeping me actually in this job and not just hopping in my car and going to South Dakota besides where her parents would kill me? But other than that, <laughs> it's every day I'm reading these letters. And they are reminding me of our relationship, of how she feels about me, of what we have to look forward to, of what our future is. And she, would, she said in this one, it's going to be soon, we're going to see each other. And it kept me going. I kept going back to them. I couldn't just read it one time and go, okay, good, I'm done. Like I was daily rereading these letters. That's the scriptures. As we are going through what we are going through, as we are trying to not please ourselves, but please others, and we are struggling, and it is pulling us down, Paul says there is hope in the scriptures. Get in them. Why? What is all of this about? What is Romans 1 through 15 all about? Why am I, as the strong, trying to 
build up the weak? And why do I have to keep this road of enduring, enduring and, and encouragement in scriptures? And look at verse four, uh, verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement, those are the same words, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus in the way that he did it, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm about to say, I'm going to get in trouble for by a few people, but I'm going to say it like this, and then I'm going to back off a little bit because you need to hear it. If you read all the way through the book of Romans and you come away thinking that God's primary goal was to save you, you have missed the message of the book of Romans. This whole book is not about our individual salvation. Here's what Paul is doing. Over here are the Jews. Over here are the Greeks. Paul wrote this epistle to tell them, God has given his son to save you and bring you together with one voice to glorify our God and Father. And if you miss that, you are missing what God is doing. If you think that leaving this book, Christianity, is about your relationship with God and that's it, you are missing what God is doing. That this was about bringing people together into a community called the body of Christ, whether you are Jew or Greek or anything else, that with one voice you may glorify our God and Father. One voice. In fact, look at the main application of the entire book. Verse seven, this is the biggest therefore in the book. Therefore, based on everything that I've said since chapter one, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I have heard, okay, here's my background. Um, I came to faith in a four-square church. Um, I've been in a Calvary chapel. I've been in assemblies of God. I was a Bible church pastor for seven years. Um, I went to Catholic mass for like six months. I've been all over the map. And here's what I know about that background. Everybody has their own ideas about what things look like. And far too often, we get into our own little holy huddles of what things look like. And from my background, a lot of that non-denominational—I can't talk—non-denominational things. It was all about me and my relationship to Him. If I thought about what it meant to glorify God, glorifying God was reading my Bible. Glorifying God was sing, singing some praise songs. Glorifying God was going out and doing a service project or sharing my faith. And all of those things are fine. But I never heard somebody say this. Unity in the body of Christ is glorifying God. That when you and I are unified, we are bringing glory to our Father. In fact, the reason... Keep going with me for a minute. Um, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then he's going to go down and he's going to say, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised 
to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Two things in that. Number one, his welcome to us was real. It was not the kind of welcome you get from a used car salesman who comes at you and smiles big and says, I've got a great deal for you. No, you don't. You want to rip me off somehow. I mean, that, that, that's what you think, right? Whether it's true, that's what we feel. Hey, that is not the welcome of Christ. Christ's welcome was genuine, so much so that he became a servant. The king of glory, as we sang about, came down and became a servant. Why? That he might fulfill the plan of God. What was the plan? Every quote that you read after this in that little section, it comes from the first five books, it comes from the Psalms, it comes from the prophets, and it comes from the historical books. Four Old Testament quotes that cover the entire Old Testament. Why? Because God's plan all along was that the Gentiles would come together with the Jews. All along, that's what he wanted. In fact, go back to the Ten Commandments and look at Exodus 19 through 24, and you will see in the midst of all of this, he says to the Jews, you are a priesthood to the nations. You know what that means? You are supposed to bring me to everybody else. From the very beginning, this was what it was. God's plan all along was to bring people together to himself. So when we are unified, we are bringing glory to God. We are fulfilling his plans. We are doing what he called. We are honoring the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, people know really well, even if you don't know those verses, because it's all about how he saved us when we deserved wrath. However, 11 through 22, the rest of that chapter, they're about what happens when we're saved. And it's that he's brought them together into one body to grow up into Christ. This is our calling. If you want to fulfill the plan of God, be unified. If you are strong, be willing to please somebody else and not yourself. Whatever you're going through, recognize God's called us together past all of our petty disagreements, past all of the things that are just not essential. And I know for some people those are hard, but they're not as big as us being together as one body in Christ. All right, take a breath. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about this message, and I also spent a lot of time trying to come up with some little jokes and things to throw in because it's so heavy. Um, nothing fit. Um, I hope this can just sit with you. Uh, because, so, uh, I never talked to my daughter about what the finger meant. I just... I wasn't even sure how I would. Like, how do I explain that to her? I mean, it's, I'm not sure she even knows the word that it represents yet. I, I just, the whole thing was like weird. Like, I just don't want to do this yet. She's nine. Um, if she does know, I'm not sure I want to know that either yet. <laughs> so I, I just kind of let it go. And I thought, you know, she's kind of laughing. She really just wanted a finger tap from her brother. I mean, she did. And so I'm going to let this go for now. And, and at some point, we're going to have to uh, deal with it. Um, please don't let this go. 
don't let this go. I, I have sat where you're sitting, um, and I've done this thing here, uh, and I know what can happen. I know that you can hear a message and you can think, oh, that was a great point, or that was a great illustration, or oh, that really touches me, or that speaks into my life, and, and then we leave. And it's like that door frame is an amnesia door frame. Like you walk through, oh, I don't know what I was thinking about, but I'm going to keep going now, I'm in my life. And we forgot all about it. Um, don't, don't, this is so significant. It's, it's meant to be foundational. It's meant to be how we view ourselves and, and how we act and we think as believers in Christ. Don't let it just go away. But take it with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for welcoming us for the glory of God. Thank you for fulfilling the plan of God to bring the nations together, to bring peoples together, to bring families together, to be one voice, unified and lifting up our God. Lord, help us to welcome others for your glory. Help us to see the value, the significance, the vital nature of the scriptures in living out our calling, that we as a body would be in your word and help us to see others first, not to please ourselves first, but to seek to please, to build up others for their good, for your glory, that we might honor Christ. In his name we ask it, amen.